0: Hello and welcome to Weird Together. I'm Brennan Store, host of the Ghost Story Guys podcast. I'm Joseph Camo, host of The Cardinal Rule. And this is a show where we celebrate the latest and greatest in independent horror films. We're not critics. We're not experts. We're just weird. Together. Joseph, my friend, welcome back. How you doing?
1: I am doing well. You know, it's, it's midway through the summer. I've started working on my promotion dossier for full professor, uh, which is a fun exercise in both documenting my accomplishments and justifying my existence in an academic setting. So, uh, <laughs> right. you know, having fun with that, uh, you know, getting ready to get out of town. I think we we're talking about that off air, uh, you know, just trying to kind of make the most of this time uh, before I have to get back to uh, teaching in the fall how are you doing?
0: Well, you are, uh, applying for your full professorship. And I recently got a message from indeed inviting me to apply for the position of a dishwasher. So I think that nicely <laughs> illustrates our, uh, sorry, man, that landed way better than I thought it
1: would. <laughs> sorry to laugh at, uh, your, at your no, circumstances, it's okay. but
0: it's, it's very confusing. Cause I, I was invited earlier this year. I was invited to apply for a, uh, Uh, an associate producer role on a on a television news broadcast and um, I I got as far as the testing and then they went with another candidate which which is fine because I have no experience in that sphere but it was it was genuinely uh, an honor to be invited to apply then the dishwashing job so it's it's all very confusing Joseph Uh, I have no idea what I'm going to be doing for work but we are however not here to talk about our grotesque social inequality that's right I said (laughs) it Professor. Did I mention I have a PhD? No, it has never come up, but uh, I'll go park your car now, sir. <laughs>
1: oh, man. Uh, you, sadly is you'll probably make more money than me washing those dishes. I'm an academic, you know, so. <laughs>
0: That's fair. That's uh, not on the West Coast, man. The, uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the pay is, is grotesque out here. It's, it's, I don't know how anyone lives. I was talking to a bartender about this the other night. I think the living wage here is about 24 bucks an hour. And most of the stuff I've been getting emails about is like 1920. I don't know how people live, but that that's that's another conversation entirely. I swear you cannot have a conversation with someone on the West Coast right now, or really in anywhere in Canada, where we've actually had income inequality growing even faster than it has in the States. But you can't have a conversation with someone on the West Coast without them bitching about the cost of living. So I'll, I'll spare everyone. I'll spare everyone that for now. Although I guess it does kind of fit into what we're talking about because we are talking on this episode about the film. Influencer. Influencer tells the story of Madison, a social media personality alone in Thailand where she gets massages, sells skincare products to insecure teenagers, and spends so much time gazing into the abyss, she forgets one of life's cardinal rules. Never follow a hippie to a second location. Will enigmatic drifter CW cancel Madison by abandoning her in the middle of the ocean? Will Madison's idiot boyfriend half-heartedly search for her whilst simultaneously trying to drink Thailand dry? Will I have to watch this film without trying to think about the sword hanging above the head of everyone whose living depends on the attention of an audience? You'll have to watch Influencer to find out. But before we break down how we feel about the film, you never go into any movie entirely fresh. You bring every other movie you ever saw in there, you bring your expectations, and will you bring a lot of baggage? Joseph, my friend, what if any baggage did you have going into Influencer?
1: The main baggage I had with this was the fact that it's about someone who is, you know, involved in the, the content creation space. And obviously we do this podcast. Um, I do stuff on YouTube, right? My own YouTube channel uh, with the, regarding the Arizona Cardinals. So I, you know, it's something I'm interested in as someone who on a smaller scale does that, and someone who tries he's just you know a curious social observer. So you know, being in the, a content creator, I'm always trying to learn more about it and get kind of looks behind the curtain and see other per, uh, perspectives on it. And so, going to this film, I, I was certainly interested in how they were going to approach. Um, obviously by the name, you can tell you know from the the context, is this is going to be about some sort of social media, you know, content creation influencer. So I was certainly intrigued in terms of how they were going to approach this particular field.
0: I found out about the film uh, because I follow the film critic, Brian Tellerico. I think that's how you say his last name. It's that or Talarico. I, I think, uh, anyways, someone, so if you know, send us an email, weirdtogetherpod or weirdtogethershow at gmail.com. I think that's what it is. Yeah, we'll go with that. But um, yeah, so I, I was, I follow him on social media and I was reading his review or pardon me, he, he tweeted about it. One night, and he said, This is great. You, you got to see, everyone's got to see this. So I went and read his review on Ebert.com And he specifically says in the review, he says, You know, if, if you care about spoiling the film for yourself, don't read past a certain point. So I didn't, I stopped uh, because he said, The joy in this film is that you don't necessarily know where it's going to go. And I love that. I, you know, It's not often you get to be surprised when you watch a shitload of movies because after a while, you know, you start to recognize tropes, right? You start to recognize common things people do because we're all watching the same media and we're all kind of drawing from the same well. So, uh, I was really stoked on that level. But other than that, no, I didn't really have much in the way of baggage going into this one. Uh, I mean, obviously, yeah, as you say, we're, you know, we're both creators and that's always kind of fascinating because, you know, the level we're at, I mean, for me, I I podcast full-time or Mostly, again, I'm browsing many high-profile positions at the moment, entertaining a number of very lucrative offers. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, this takes up most of my time. And so you start to think of it in your head, or I do at least, it's like, oh, this is a, for me, it's a big deal. Not that I'm important, just that this is a, like an all-encompassing thing. But, you know, our, my audience is in the low five figures. But then you look at someone like the character in this film who has hundreds of thousands of followers, it's a whole other beast. And to, to, imagine what that looks like to scale that up is kind of mind boggling for me. And so I, yeah, I, I myself was, was interested in that part of it as well. And there's some really interesting shit that I think we're going to get into when we get to the talk about that world, about that lifestyle. And I, and I, again, this is more Toctagon centric, but I don't think the film is always as successful as it could be in examining that lifestyle. I do still think it has a few things to say, and, and I think just as a, a little bit of a, of a magnifying glass on that life, it, there, there's a lot of value there, in, in addition to just its merits as a thriller, which I, I think it has. Speaking of merits, there's really only one place where, uh, well, the hoi Poloi and the Elohim <laughs> can discuss such matters, Joseph, pardon me, Professor kamo <laughs> Allow me to escort you to the Toctagon. Welcome to the Toctagon. Two men enter. Two men leave. All right, Joseph. We are here. We are in the Toctagon. We are for a second. Socioeconomic equals. (laughs) What did you think of Influencer?
1: I liked that they attempted to have a little bit of show behind the curtain of content creators and influencers and did not great caricatures. At first, I, you know, in my notes, it's like, oh great, you know, she's a walking cliche. In the opening kind of montages, right? Because she seemed like very cliche. But once you kind of see her put the phone down and you start to see the character a little bit more, and you see some of these other characters you know, Ryan, who is, you know, involved in the behind the scenes of it, or, or this other character, Jessica, who herself is involved in as an influencer. And you start to see, no, these people are being given, I think, a fair treatment as three-dimensional humans and not caricatures. So I appreciated that they, they seem to set out to not do caricatures, but I would also agree with your view that I think they didn't go deep enough. I think there was a lot of opportunity and a lot of things they could have done in the film to really explore that space even more. You know, certainly they, they, they kind of depict the loneliness. They depict sort of the emptiness and, and something we'll talk about later, kind of the, the hyper reality of this. But I think th- there's just so, there's so much more meat on those bones that they could have explored.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I think there are films that have done this and... I think if you're going to work in this space, then it's hard not to be in the shadow of something like Ingrid Goes West, which is, uh, I guess, kind of a thriller starring Aubrey Plaza about an obsessed fan stalking someone on social media, uh, and even uh, honestly, a film that I think was underrated at the time was Cam, which was about uh, a young woman who is a cam girl, and it it's a, it's a straight up horror film. I mean, this is I'd say more of a thriller. But Cam is a straight up supernatural horror about a cam girl who basically one day there is a complete duplicate of her online doing her shtick. And it, it really sort of digs down on how replaceable you are and and how tenuous your situation is or you know, how, how uh, unstable your situation is when you're relying on the, the whims of an audience. So I think when those two films are out there, I do think you have to try a little bit harder as far as if you're going to. Really examine that life. But yeah, I think they, they developed the characters. You know, Ryan really starts off as a thoroughly unlikable character. And I, I'll be honest, I'm, through most of the film, I didn't like him. And at one point, the point of view sort of shifts to be his point of view. And I wasn't crazy about that because I thought, I don't like this person. You know, th- there's elements of their relationship that seem at least emotionally abusive. Uh, of course, we're speaking of, of Ryan and Madison, our main character. And well, I guess really CW is the main character, but, uh, Madison is the character who gets us started and sort of our, our window into that world of, of influencers. And yeah, it does seem like they have a really, again, I think he seems kind of abusive emotionally at least. And she, again, when we started taking up his point of view, I thought, ah, I'm not crazy about this, but I do think they walked a nice edge between this person is a jackass, but also that's not all he is. There is more to him there. But yeah, again, I, I felt they, they did that well. And, and, and the filmmakers have said in interviews that they wanted, uh, or the filmmaker, uh, Curtis David Harder, he said that, you know, he wanted to show these are people, uh, while at the same time kind of looking at this wider world and going, why are we doing this? And again, that's the part where I feel like the film doesn't necessarily work.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's, the Ryan character is interesting because I, I didn't like him either. You know, there was a point later on in the film, you know, where he's kind of. Starting to piece some things together and kind of pressing the issue with CW. Where I, I, I in my notes I've said Ryan is a jerk, but at this moment I'm kind of glad that he is because he was sure. kind of pushing right the issue. There's definitely some emotional abusiveness now, and this is maybe your here. I'd like to hear your read on this because there were some there were some points where it sounds like there was maybe physical abuse because CW she kind of alludes to that she knows. And he kind of has this kind of response that's like that he, he, he knows what she's talking about. And then there's this point where she posts as Madison about how he had been abusive and then gets all these, you know, kind of the social media shows of support, how brave you are for coming forward and this and the other. And my take coming out of this film is there was like some physical abuse in that history as well. What, did, did you read it that way? Interesting. or? Interesting.
0: I mean, given the way he behaves when he turns up to the house, you know, that kind of love bombing where, I mean, he was very rude to her on the phone when she was clearly in distress. He blamed her for the situation when her her passport was stolen and then to just turn up in Thailand unannounced. And again, that's like, that's love bombing. I mean, that's a, that's a narcissist's uh, tool right there. And so it's possible. I took it as when CW announced via Madison's account about the abuse, I sort of took that as her painting him into a corner so he didn't have any way to accuse her credibly of having hurt Madison. So I, I don't know whether the abuse happened or not. I'm, I'm unclear on that. And uh, you know, Curtis Harder, if you're listening, I would very much be curious to know your take on this. Uh, because yeah, that I wasn't totally clear. I read it as she sent messages to him using Madison's phone about abuse to create a paper trail and then used that. To, again, to just totally stitch him up, to completely burn down his reputation. Because CW, uh, and, and she's, a, she's, a, she's an interesting character. And I thought, uh, I think it's Cassandra Nod, who is a Canadian. Uh, i am always like to point that out. Um, and she was great. And, but I, th- I think that character considers herself above the world of social media and above the people who involve themselves in it. And so I think, you know, she delighted in the notion of destroying what they had built.
1: I- I, I mean, I think, I mean, I definitely agree that she was doing that to discredit him I, and kind of trying to make him a persona non grata so that he could go away. But I, I think the way he responded, he didn't like deny that there was something. Uh, right. there. So that yeah, makes me a good wonder, point. Yeah. right? If there was something there. At the same time, listen, and I liked uh, uh, this, this might be dangerous kind of. <laughs> water to shred but I like that they still made him human because people are complicated and sure. right. And there are people who are narcissists and abusive who also can be charming and in moments caring. And that's why life is complicated and why sometimes people stay in relationships like that longer than they really ought to. And so they, the, again, he was a three-dimensional character in that regard.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, without getting too much into it, I've had that in a work relationship. I had someone who presented as very caring and, and very, you're my friend and I love you and I want you to do the best for you, but they would love bomb. And when I stepped outside that situation over the course of uh, now years and really observed that behavior, and thankfully I had people pointing it out to me, yeah, they, they would do that. They would get presented as very caring and, and this and that, but they would also tear you down at the same time. But do it in a way where it was, no, this is just, you know, this is, I'm just saying a true thing. I'm not being mean. And so, yeah, I, I very much understand what you mean.
1: Yeah. Going back to kind of the social media influencer thing, I thought it was really well done in some of the opening montages, the way they showed madison doing her recording herself doing her whatever you know 20 second oh this is such a beautiful place it makes me reflect on the meaning of life and whatever else and then she puts the phone down and she's just by herself in a beautiful place but lonely and just it kind of shows the shallowness and kind of the you know the what i like to you know think of as like well there's kind of some social theory that I kind of want to bring into this that I think is really interesting. Um, you know, there's there's a sociologist philosopher uh, uh, Jean Baudrillard uh, who wrote Simulacrum and uh, Simulations, which was very influential. In fact, uh, there's a copy of the the book on camera in the movie The Matrix, and r- reportedly it was required reading for everyone who was associated with the film because it's kind of a philosophical underpinning of, of the film. Um, That's
0: in Neo's apartment, right?
1: I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to go back and watch and pin down this shot because I have, I haven't actually looked at that myself, but I've read it multiple places, including the highly reputable source, uh, Wikipedia. So, huh. <laughs> right. But Beaujard a really fascinating sociologist. I, I read his stuff in grad school and it's it's philosophy, it's social theory, it's prose, it's poetry, it's it's... It's not real accessible at moments, but it's really interesting. And he has this idea of hyperreality, which really kind of looks at these simulations and simulacra that are copies of reality that become more real than reality. Uh, Okay, sure. And and that's kind of the idea. In fact, uh, there's there's a meme that I'll share with you that you might want to share in the notes here uh, that explains this theory through pumpkin spice. So there's these four stages to hyperreality. Stage one, initially, the sign or the image or representation is a reflection of basic reality. So you have a thing that is reflecting a reality. So in this meme, you see a picture of a pumpkin drawn realistically to look like a pumpkin. OK, so that's the stage one. It's a realistic image. Uh, then stage two, the sign masks a basic reality. The image becomes a distortion of reality. So the next step in hyperreality is you go from a a reflection, an accurate reflection of reality to a distortion of reality. And in the meme, there's a picture of a pumpkin pie, right? It's a distortion of a pumpkin. Stage three, the sign marks the absence of basic reality. The image calls into question what the reality is and if it even exists. So it gets further detached uh, from reality. So then in this meme, there's a pumpkin spice latte, right? So it's even further detached distortion from the original. And then stage four, the sign bears no relation to any reality whatsoever. It's its own pure simulacrum. And, you know, this meme has like a Coffee Mate uh, pumpkin spice, you know, kind of uh, creamer. But the whole idea here is like you've got a reality and you've got these simulations of these copies that become further detached from the reality till you get to a full simulacrum, which is kind of the, you know, the name of the book, obviously. And a simulacrum is a copy of a thing that never really existed or has ceased to exist.
0: It's like homeopathic reality.
1: Okay, unpack what you mean. Yeah, I think you're on the track, but I want to I want to understand. Yeah, unpack that for me.
0: So the idea behind homeopathic medicine is that you know, by the time you get, and I'm sure there's gonna be people who are into homeopathy that tell me I'm wrong, but as I understand it, when you get a homeopathic remedy, there is nothing of actual. Chemical value in there. It's water. But the idea is that it retains the memory. So you you start off with a a, a, say a bucket of lavender essence. And then you dilute that. And then you dilute the dilution. And then you dilute the dilution, the diluted dilution, and you keep doing that. And the idea is that, well, this is this is lavender. This is good for you. You take this and it'll calm you down because that's what lavender does. It's essence of lavender. But there's no there's no lavender anywhere near it. It hasn't been lavender in a very long time, but it's sold
1: as lavender. Interesting. OK, yeah. So that, that's the same idea, right? So like this whole thing. So you think about. Okay, Sorry. well Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, dishwasher go whoosh. OK. <laughs>
1: nice. Dishwasher go whoosh. Yes. Uh so like yeah, that, that's the right idea. So the the, the idea here I'm, I'm seeing with this film is like okay, you've got reality which is a vacation, right, or being in a place, right, right, uh, and then social media influencers sort of create this hyper reality of what a vacation is, this fabulous image, right, uh, that is detached from the reality and is a distortion of reality. Uh, but what's weird about kind of Bougiard's argument is. These hyper realities become more real than the actual reality to us, right? Sure. So, to to many people, a, you know, a social media influencer like Madison's representation of Thailand is what they know of Thailand because they they they'll never go there, right? A, a typical seventeen-year-old right. in the United States or Canada who follows Madison is not going to go to Thailand in the lifetime. And so her representation of this becomes more real than the actual thing, right? And so there's this weird hyper-reality, this distortion of reality. And you take it to this next level is this is a film about a social media creator, right, right, who is doing that. And now we are a podcast talking about a film. It's like we are this fourth level, you know, kind of we are the coffee mate pumpkin spice coffee mate uh, of this this analogy here this
0: presents as a linear conversation but it's not because this is heavily edited and arranged and this is something i find fascinating about about media is we reflect despite people in media saying oh no we don't do the things we see on screen and we don't it's bullshit we do um i mean i'm not saying that films are responsible for violence but to, to say that media doesn't shape discourse and, and behavior uh, it was just a straight-up lie. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't be worried about putting progressive messages and things, which I think we should, because I think it's it helps kind of get it into the culture, and over time, it becomes a dominant attitude. But people look at, say, the way folks talk in movies to each other, you know, especially sitcoms. You know, like it's really snappy, really like boom, 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 and people try to talk like that. You know, people ape the things they see in film, are on screen, because they think. Or and and podcasts because they think well this is the way people talk, but it's not. It, it's it, this is a stylized version of that. But they they sort of lost the ability to step back and examine something as entertainment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and it becomes this distortion of reality, right? In in multiple ways. So let me let me take that just another direction. I enjoy Malcolm Gladwell's books. I, I think he he does kind of I I call it like pop sociology, very accessible kind of ideas of social analysis. And he had a book talking to strangers that came out a couple of years ago that I, I thought I I, did, I read the listened to the audio book because my eyes are bad and I'm old, but uh um enjoyed it thoroughly. <laughs> Damn, I'm right, there with right? You. Yeah, yeah. And one of the one of the points he makes in that is, is kind of a uh kind of jumps off from what you're talking about is how. We like don't actually read human emotions as well as we like to think we are. We do like you know. There's this whole idea that this whole idea that we're more intuitive than we give ourselves credit for, you know. And there's some truth to that right. There's there 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 have been books about. I think the gift of fear is a very popular book that talks about if you have that oh, kind yeah. of deep down feeling of something's wrong here, trust that and you know. And I, I think there's some truth to that at the same time. At the surface level, I do think we aren't, and there's research that supports this that we aren't great at reading affect on faces. And Gladwell talked about that in the book as far as like a lot of really tragic interactions between law enforcement and, and people of color and things like this and, and other types of situations that sometimes start because of misreads and people not knowing each other and and things like this, and and, and then things go really in bad directions. And one of the things he talked about in that book is how sitcoms have shaped our ideas of what facial affect looks like, right? You see a sitcom and the exaggerated look on their face of anger or happiness or surprise or amusement because actors are acting. They are there in, in, a, in a sitcom where you have such shorthand to develop, you know, the plot and the storyline and what's going on. You, you do an exaggerated facial affect represents represent shock. And in real life, what a person who's kind of shocked by something you said looks like is actually very much what you look like right now, Brent. Just like a, like, it's not, it's not, no, like that's now, you just did the sitcom face, but like often our, our facial expressions are much more subdued and much less right exaggerated. So I think this is another way in which it, it's all that hyperreality, the way people talk, as you alluded to in, sit, in television and sitcoms, the way the facial expressions how people experience living out loud and living, you know, uh, living your best life. And what ends up happening is we have this distorted idea of what reality is supposed to be. And social media influencers are are part of that.
0: Oh yeah. And, And further to your point about how the average person, that's not, you know, that's to them, that's what Thailand is going to be. Most people who go to Thailand, I would argue that's not going to be their experience of Thailand. The places that Madison were staying were were very high end and you're seeing the best, most curated parts of that. And and this is not new commentary about social media, but you know, the average person going to Thailand, they're not going to see that. That's not how they're going to experience it. And I think it then creates this dissatisfaction gap because they're not having that experience. They're not having the Instagram experience. Even honestly myself, this is a very, very small scale example, but you know, I like taking night photos. And I, I, you know, some people say, oh, that's very creepy. That's very cool. You know, I, I wouldn't want to go there, blah, 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 blah. But I mean, I'm editing not heavily, but I'm editing color and texture and things like this to make it seem darker, to make it seem more moody and spooky. And, and, you know, quite often I'm taking pictures. My mother sometimes will say, you know, don't get stabbed taking pictures, you know, in these creepy ass places. But most of the times they're actually in really public areas. It's just how I frame it makes it seem cut off from everything else. Uh, and it's, again, it's just curated reality. And if someone kind of went, oh, I want to go to that place, I want to go, I want to like, experience what, I, what that place is making me feel, what that art is making me feel, you can't because it, it's art. It doesn't, it doesn't exist, but it's presented in a way that, no, this is, this is a thing that exists. And, and I actually think that's really kind of dangerous. And I, I don't necessarily think we've reckoned with the social cost of that.
1: I, I think you're right. Uh, and for me, that becomes something like that's very vivid as a parent. I have two sons, that are oh, 11 and 8. And my 8-year-old in particular loves YouTube uh, and everything's right. a meme. Oof. And I, I even see, yeah I see how his views of reality are kind of distorted by social media sometimes. And, you know, we're trying to limit, it, you know, his consumption on that. But uh, limiting screen time is difficult when you're home during the summer. Maybe we've talked about this on here before. Maybe we haven't. But, you know, as a sociologist, one of the things I have often think about is I actually think there's kind of a there's a stratification, a social class aspect of it where, like, the people I meet who have, I guess, I don't know, have more kind of cultural capital in terms of higher education, higher social Socioeconomic status, their kids are often not on screens all the time. It's really much more the working class and the, the the lower middle class kind of families where you see much more screen time. And I think I think families that are higher in socio in socioeconomic status are much more like kind of are intentionally kind of keeping their kids away from that so much and making them read books and do other things and social interactions and. I do. It's it's interesting because generationally, in our generation coming up, I think we were we were taught that you had to be technologically savvy to not get left behind, and it feels like there's a almost like a pendulum sw- uh, swing where now like you need to buffer yourself and your children from overexposure to technology to not get left behind because the people who are kind of pulled into that world too much might be the ones who uh, kind of suffer compared to those who maybe learn how to interact <laughs> in the real world and not be so sucked into this hyper-reality.
0: We could probably talk for an hour just about that. I mean, I just finished reading the book Men Who Hate Women by Laura Bates and it's, uh, it's a really great book uh, and she talks about these spaces, these online spaces, where it's a bubble and these men, you know, they don't have opportunities to experience social life in the real world, whether just the opportunity isn't there or social anxiety prevents them. So, their experience of the world is filtered through these online forums. And quite often, this can result in a very frighteningly toxic worldview. Uh, and of course, a, an incomplete worldview, because this is not really how the world works. This is just this v- snapshot, which again is manipulated by people who have an agenda. In the case of influencers, to take it back to the film, you know, they're trying to sell you something. You know, in, in the film, we see Madison selling skincare products. And in the case of the Manosphere, they're selling bullshit. They're selling lies. They're selling fairy tales about the way things used to be and how we can get back there if only you do this and buy this and, and you know, it's this person's fault that you're this way.
1: They're selling affirmation of your anger and anxiety is what they're doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Also, coincidentally, as we're having this conversation, there is a massive strike happening over on Reddit because basically Reddit is making it more difficult for third-party apps to access their site. And this follows on from the absolute fucking that Twitter has had at the hands of Tesla CEO Elon Musk, the pollution of other public square spaces. And so I was reading a conversation on the social media app, Blue Sky, where they, where they spoke about this. And basically, they're saying that what they this person was saying, what they see happening, is the people who run these platforms can't let them just be a social space. They have to constantly, in order to justify their existence, they have to be monetizable. They have to evolve and and become really, in a lot of ways, more alienating because they have to become more exclusive. They have to become they have to become what they were never intended to be in the first place, and consequently, the people. The people who use them all the time, the ones who make them what they are, become alienated and now, and then use them less, and so they stop being what they were meant to be. They lose their utility, and I feel like that's that's happening in a lot of different ways. I think mean, again, social media, you know, has become such a simulacra that it's it's no longer useful to, as the thing it once was. It has it has strayed so far. For just like this conversation is straight so far from the movie, right, from the movie, that yeah. uh, that it, it's no longer represent. It's no longer the thing it was meant to be.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, s- social media, you know, in it, it, its core, in its purest, more idealistic form is supposed to be uh, a lot of noble things. It's, it's a way to stay connected to people. It is a it, it is a democratizing thing that creates, you know, opportunities and access for people who might not have had that in the past. And there's still some elements of that but it has increasingly become, you know, yeah. Uh, Twitter for, you know, and, and for example, you, you referenced that supposed to be this place where if you had interesting ideas and you, you, you articulate them in a way that caught people's attention, you could ride the algorithm and get a following. And, so on and so forth. And now so much of what, what Musk is trying to do is, you know, where your $8 a month for your, your verified, you know, gives you preference in the algorithm and it, it's turning it back to where, no, you, you have to pay, right? Pay to play to have that, right? And so it's just, it's increasingly reverting back to a less de- democratic space. So
0: yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I think we're, we're at a fascinating point in culture. I think is a way to, to wind up that particular, that particular conversation. But getting back to Influencer, there was something I really was struck by. And I, I saw in one interview with the director, the interviewer referenced the film Single White Female. hmm yeah. And what I thought was interesting, and they sort of kind of, they referred to it as like, like almost like an erotic thriller, but it's not in any way. And I actually really appreciated that. I mean, you, you know me, I'm a degenerate. But the character of CW who is really the the talented mrs ripley essentially you know she kills people and assumes their identity for a while and avails herself of their resources and then moves on and she herself is kind of a cipher she has almost no interest in not almost she has no apparent interest in sex and i think usually when especially when men are writing these films they like to make their femme fatale very sexual and that's just not the case. And, and I like that. I thought that was very refreshing. I, the only time anything even re- remotely sexual happens is when she drugs Ryan and tries to make him think they had sex in order to create a false bond between them so, to, so as to allay his suspicions. And again, I just thought that was a, a kind of a cool subversion of that trope. Because again, usually that's, it's, again, it's a very male way of looking at the world, this idea like, oh, the, the female sex drive. And so there's always something evil about that. Because if it's a heroine who has the, the, the who has a sex drive, then she is punished for it somehow. And if it's the, the 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 villain who has it, then it's it's that is part of her villainy. Like her her sexual agency is a symptom of her villainy. And again, I just I, I appreciated how the film sidestepped that.
1: Yeah, in fact, like not only did she not actually pursue that. I mean, she was an attractive woman, but it did not feel like she was. Using that even before that, if that makes sense, like she wasn't trying to seduce him or anything like that. I do think that I would have liked to have known more about her and you know where she came from and what what her end game was. Uh, maybe she really was just living that life, but I'm not sure what her motivation was other than I guess living in these really nice places.
0: Again, re- in reading interviews with the filmmakers. That was an intentional choice to leave her as, as, again, as a bit of a cipher. Although they told uh, the actress who portrayed her, Cassandra Nod, they told her, we want you to come up with your own reasoning for this. Don't tell us. So she apparently had compiled her own sort of life history of CW. And there was a moment when she tells Madison essentially what she's about to do, that she's about to abandon Madison on this island to die. There were moments where it was played as if I wondered... If she was telling her own story to a degree, she says, for example, um, no one will come looking for you. You'll fade into obscurity. And, and it made me wonder if this is meant again, the way she played that is her looking back on her own life. You know, she, she says that her father taught her how to sail, but that's the only time the only mention we have of any family of any connections. And you get the impression that's, that's long in the past. And so, again, I, I wonder if that, uh, if, if that was meant to be reflective of her past experience. Because the other thing that occurred to me is, as I mentioned earlier, she really seems to have a disdain for influencers, for people who, who, who do this work. And it is work, to be clear. I mean, that is, a, it's, it's time consuming. If you're doing that full time, that's a job. It's, you know, people say, oh, I got to take some pictures of myself and flaunt my ass or whatever shitty things people say. It's not that. It is a colossal amount of work. To be a successful influencer is not easy. Which is not to say you should want to be that thing, but I'm just saying it's, it's work. But she really seems to look down on those people and especially she underestimates Madison uh, substantially. You know, of course, by the end of the film, you know, Madison comes back and does that to her. And I wonder, you know, sometimes people who have bad situations, they don't, you know, I think the cliche is that People who've been through shit come out better people. That's not always the case. And I wonder if, you know, she has is if she's reenacting her trauma on other people, one of the things that came out of her survival was her looking down on these people, her looking down on other people, thinking she's above them. And that eventually it leads to her downfall. You know, because when she meets Jessica, for example, Jessica sees through her much quicker than Madison does. But Jessica is also portrayed as someone who's much more in control of herself you know, someone who's much more of a, a fully formed person than maybe Madison is. And I, I've, again, I've met those people and I, th- the more of a fully formed person you are, it's not that you can't be taken in by them, but I think you start to see through it faster.
1: One of the things I enjoyed about that pivot when she met Jessica and, you know, she, she, you know, and I, I noticed the same thing you did, you know, she, she goes into the shop with her and she tries to play the, you know, she starts with the same bait. She started with Madison of the, you know, the person who knows the ropes. Like, hey, that's fake. I I can take you to a place to get a real one. And you know, Jessica's like, yeah, I know. This is for my sister. She won't know the difference. One of the things I enjoyed about the writing and the character was that CW's character changed the bait, right? Because she's she yes. recognized, right that this oh this person is going to see through this, so I have to come. With a different sort of bait of the person who's needy or you know who 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 yeah. who needs her guidance, and I thought that was a clever you know kind of it illustrated the manipulative uh, qualities of this character. So that that was sort of a a turn in the film that I kind of enjoyed in the writing.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Again, a really a really great character. I mean, I don't want to see a sequel to this film because I just I think it works nicely as it as it is, but. You know, again, I w I wouldn't I, I could see again a talented Mrs. Ripley situation where CW just kind of moves through the world, you know, doing this to other people and and kind of adapting and and using people and learning how people work. There was a moment when when Jessica sees through her, and it was we talked on the last episode of Bear the Bride about being comfortable within society and, and thinking that oh, I can say or do whatever the fuck I want and I like no one's gonna stop me. There's no gonna be no major consequences you know, cause we get used to the social compact. We get used to saying, Oh, I can call you an asshole and you're going to be upset that I said that, but you're not going to pop me in the mouth probably. And Jessica, the kind of person she seems to be, you know, she sees through CW, but she doesn't see all the way through her. She, and it's that danger, I think of thinking you're more perceptive than you are. And I certainly, I've, again, I've fallen prey to this where you think, Oh, I, I see through this person. And maybe you recognize something's not right, but you're not right about what's not right. And in the case of, of uh, CW, the way she was portrayed, she's much more dangerous when you think you see through her. And I think it's because she's angry at being seen. And I, again, I've, I've encountered that in my life where someone who is not a murderer, but who is duplicitous, who is a narcissist, you know, if you call them on that, they react aggressively.
1: I have dealt with that professionally.
0: <laughs> Me too.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I think overall the character, C.W., was was probably the best character in the film. Just really well done. Uh, but overall, I, th- I thought the acting was pretty solid across the board. We watch a lot of small films, independent films. This has more, clearly had more of a budget than some of the films we've watched, uh, but it's still a low-budget film. and. Uh, Overall, I mean, I thought, I don't, you know, I thought the, the, the directing, the, the cinematography, the, the locations, and the acting were all really solid.
0: Yeah, agreed. To contrast this with Bury the Bride, which we did last episode, that was shot in seven days. This was shot over the course of three months.
1: <laughs> yeah. Now, they, they had to go to a lot of different sites, I imagine, so that the travel was part of that. But yeah, they had a little more time. You know, I I imagine you caught this in some of the interviews, but I, I caught a few interviews with the director and it was interesting. He went to Thailand uh, on, you know, on a trip and kind of mapped out the film, so to speak, ahead of time. So he had kind of, you know, visited the locations and the sites and kind of had an idea for what he was going to be doing. And then they, you know, kind of they wrote the film and then went back and filmed that. So that, I thought that was kind of interesting. You wonder how do they come up with all these great locations. And, well, he went there and found himself.
0: Yeah, and they also benefited as much as, I mean, it seems a strange word to use, but from the pandemic, because they were meant to film pre-COVID, and obviously they had to push. So when they went back to Thailand, things were only just opening up, and the beaches that Madison was on would ordinarily be chock-a-block with people. But instead, they were empty. And so it really contributed to that air of loneliness.
1: No, that's interesting, because I felt like, yeah, these places seem just... Really, much more empty than you would expect, which, like, as you said, that that really helped with the feeling.
0: And last thing I wanted to say, I just want to specifically uh, shout out uh, Emily Tennant as Madison. I thought she was great because I really, she was the only character in the film I really genuinely felt for because it seemed as though she did not have a single person in her life who genuinely cared about her. You know, even Ryan, maybe Ryan cared, but also I think that caring was an extension of his possession of her. Everyone who, who expressed concern for her also wanted something from her, or she represented some critical part of their ecosystem. Like her friend Sam, I think his name was, he had clearly no allegiance to her whatsoever. He was on the side of whoever could benefit him the most. And uh, she just, uh, again, I think it's Emily Tennant, she, I thought she, she just expressed that brilliantly. Also Canadian. Also, I didn't realize that. Yeah,
1: I helped Canadian you.
0: You did. I'm very impressed. Ah, she's from yeah, Vancouver. Yeah. Okay, so, so the the flashback scene between her and Ryan, that is shot. I'm 99 percent sure. I didn't. I didn't check, but I'm 99 percent sure that was shot at on Granville Island in Vancouver.
1: So Madison's character, I, I agree with you. She was she was the one that you're kind of pulling for, and I, I think the second half of the film is where I think you really get to appreciate her character. Because in the first half, okay, the first 20-minute montage, oh, she's she's a walking cliche, but then you see her put the phone down. It's like, okay, well, no, she's not. She's lonely and this and that. But I think there were some things you see in the second half that give her greater depth. The first is is the, the flashbacks that you were talking about with Ryan, where you see, oh, she didn't start out as an aspiring social media darling, right? She literally, you know, he kind of somehow got, got on a date with her and took a picture of her and was like, hey, this could really get you some following. She's like, well, you know, she just seemed like not at all interested in that world. So you could you see through this flashback out, oh, he kind of pulls her into it and it creates what she has become. So that gave her depth is not some not like she was just some Teenage kid who just decide I'm going to be an influencer or whatever. Like she, she didn't have designs on doing that at first, and then she becomes that. And then you see in the film almost like well she's it's almost like these golden handcuffs that maybe she doesn't really want to be part of, but it makes too much money to not do it. So I think that gave her depth, and then just simply the fact that she survived on that island for so long gives you a greater sense. You you think the cliche trope is. Oh, this is a uh, a woman who's pampered and and can't survive, couldn't survive out, you know, in the wild. And no, she fucking survives, right? So, like, it gives you this this greater respect for her resilience and her strength. And I think that all unpacks in that second half. You don't understand that until later, and I think that gives her character so much more.
0: I couldn't agree more. I overall, Joseph, I, I think this is. It's funny, I I didn't think we would have much of a conversation for this one because it seemed like a relatively straightforward film, but it's touched on so many different topics that I wasn't expecting. So I've enjoyed Influencer even more than I I already did.
1: Yeah, that's what we do, right?
0: That's it. That's that's the job. (laughs) Well, Joseph, that brings to a conclusion our conversation about Influencer. I will say Influencer is available on Shudder, I think it's a Shudder exclusive at the moment. You can get a free trial of Shudder, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, you can get a free week. You, otherwise, I think it works out to 5 or 6 bucks a month. It's worth it. There's a lot of great shit. Even if you pay for the first month, it's worth your time. It's worth your money. We always say on this show, please do not pirate independent films. I mean, try not to pirate movies generally, but if you're going to do it, pirate Marvel, pirate Disney, those guys can afford it. Do not pirate independent films. Every dollar you spend on independent film is a vote for more independent film. So again, you can get influencer. On shutter. Before we go, I just want to say uh, I mentioned two films earlier, Cam and Ingrid Goes West. I highly recommend both if you liked Influencer. They're different takes on the topic, but again, I think they address it in really, really uh, clever, insightful, and uncomfortable ways. I think Cam is streaming on Netflix and Ingrid Goes West might even still be on Netflix. Otherwise, both are rentable. I'm sure they're streaming somewhere. Both very, very good movies. Joseph, where can everyone find you online?
1: You can find me on Twitter at jokomo thirteen, jokomo thirteen. And if you happen to be interested in NFL football, my other thing, uh, you can find the Cardinal Rule on YouTube.
0: Perfect. I'm largely the truth on Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky. My other show is the Ghost Story Guys. You can find that streaming everywhere. Find podcasts live. You'll also find links to both shows in the show notes. All music on this show is composed and performed by Elliot Wilder, performing as The Revenants. You can find more from them at therevenants1.bandcamp.com or on streaming platforms everywhere, courtesy of Night Harvest Recordings. That's a Ghost Story Guys house label. Our theme song is Rest in Peace, from The Revenants album Music from Big Beige. Thanks for joining us, folks. We cannot tell you how much we appreciate you listening. If you could, rate and review us on iTunes or really everywhere you can rate podcasts. Tell your friends share the show. And until next time, remember we're weird
1: and you're weird.
0: So why not be weird together? See you next time.
1: Your, is this where you can do the kind of the film description thing? Spaghetti Western music.
0: Technically, surf guitar. Thank you. Oh, okay. Because it matters.
1: Listen, I? I haven't washed enough dishes to have that kind of expertise. So. Oh, you
0: motherfucker! That was good. That was gold. Thanks. Ooh, I'm putting that in the outtakes. We have our first outtake. Oh, that was good. How oh, I hate you. <laughs>